Well, this morning we will be continuing with our study of the servant songs found in the book of Isaiah. These four songs uh, speak in great detail about the prophesied Messiah and what he would accomplish when he arrives. Uh, the word Advent means arrival. So it's during the month of December that we celebrate the arrival of the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah spoke much about the coming of the Messiah, and these four songs are a big part of that. It's Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. They are called the servant songs because in them the Messiah is spoken of as the servant of God. In the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, uh, the Lord began to give Isaiah a message of comfort that he was to deliver. Chapters 40 through 56 especially were meant to give comfort to those Jews who were really truly committed to the Lord. Isaiah had prophesied in earlier chapters that the people of Judah were going to be attacked. They were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Many of the survivors from that attack would be carried off to Babylon to be held many years there in exile. Now that was still many years in the future in Isaiah's day. But those Jews who were truly godly people and concerned about their nation and their relationship with God were going to be distressed about these things. So it's in that context that these Advent songs of the servant are written to give comfort. Now there's a number of themes that are repeated throughout the four songs, but there's also some unique themes to be considered in each one of them. The first servant song uh, was found in Isaiah 42, which we looked at last week. An emphasis there on giving special attention to beholding, thinking clearly and carefully about who the servant of God is. He called on us to see that he was far superior, and he is far superior than to any person that we might look to or any group or any uh, source of help that we might look to. He talked about the idea of needing to see that, see that God the Father chose him. God the Father delights in the servant, delights in and the Son. We also see that there's a special emphasis on the fact that the Spirit of God would anoint the, spirit, the, the, the servant for the ministry that was given to him. And that ministry was going to bring true gospel justice to the nations of the world. So how he would do that is continued to be more clear in the subsequent songs that come. One of the highlights of that first song is seeing, that, uh, seeing the heart that the servant would have for people in need. He would be the one who would minister very gently to people who are uh, discouraged, disheartened in various ways. It says he would open the eyes of those who were blind. He would bring prisoners out of dungeons and places of deep darkness. And the servant would have, a therefore, a significant healing ministry to people who had great need. Of course, if you look over then, think about the Gospels and what that tells us about what Christ's ministry was like, that's very much what his ministry was. One thing that we see in the songs is something that we see happen in different places in the Scripture. Oftentimes, you'll see a theme mentioned early on, and then as you move on, it's elaborated on in more detail. Well, that happens in several several ways as far as this is concerned. Um, one of the areas where that comes up here is the area of covenant. In Isaiah 42, 6, that first song, we are told that God the Father would appoint the servant as a covenant to the people, 
as a light to the nations. So this tells us there was going to be a binding agreement between God the Father and God the Son that resulted in the salvation work that the servant was sent to accomplish for sinners. This idea of covenant is mentioned again in Isaiah 49. And I think this second song gives us more insight into all that was included in that covenant agreement. So let me read for you Isaiah 49, 1 to 13. It says, Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he's also made me a select arrow. He has hid me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves along the roads. They will feed and their pasture will be on the bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. One thing that's very prevalent in this servant song is a listing of various things that God the Father had spoken to God the Son as the servant. And then in verses 5 to 12, we see a number of really of direct quotes from the Father to the Son and some from the Son to the Father. The Lord revealed these things to Isaiah so that he could write them down, the phrase or something similar to it, thus says the Lord, shows up all the way through this chapter. So it's very clear that these things are things that the Lord actually spoke. And we also, again, like I said, see things that the Son responded to. So we're being given insight into a holy dialogue between the Father and the Son. A dialogue that took place in eternity past. They are decrees made before the foundation of the world regarding the salvation of men and women. 
And these decrees really are presented to us as a holy, redemptive dialogue. If you ever wonder sometimes, I wonder what kind of stuff happened before the Lord ever created the world. This is one of the things that happened. This happened before the world ever came into existence. And we're given insight into this. Now, there's two main points about this dialogue that we'll consider this morning. First has to do with what God the Father called his son to accomplish in that great work of salvation as the servant. And second speaks of the son being the covenant head to the people of God. So first, from eternity, the father in covenant with the son called him to be the servant who would show forth his glory in accomplishing salvation for sinners. We need to remember that Isaiah uses the term servant in a unique way. There are times when he uses the term to refer to the people of Israel as his servant. There are other times Isaiah is referring specifically to the promised Messiah, but he calls him the servant as well. But they're connected. When he speaks of the servant as Israel, he is speaking of the responsibility that the people of Israel were given as the people of God as a whole. They were people through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. The Jewish people, as you know, often were unfaithful to God. They often did not carry out the responsibilities given to them. That's where the Messiah as servant comes in. He's of Israel. He's a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, descendant of David, two men that God made covenant with regarding the coming Messiah. The servant as an individual descendant of Abraham is the one who would accomplish that work that was given to Israel as a whole. And that's who is being referred to in Isaiah 49. Now in chapter 48, just to kind of give us a little running start here, Isaiah spoke of the deliverance that he was going to provide, that God was going to provide for the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity. So there's a focus on deliverance there. But then the chapter, if you look at the last verse of chapter 48, it says this, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. It's in that context, of course, that Isaiah 49 begins with these words in verse 1. So listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. Now, the Lord is not talking about here about deliverance from Babylon. In this chapter, that deliverance is in the background. That's something he has spoken of in a, in a number of ways. But that's in the background here. And the salvation of people from sin and condemnation is really what's in view. And it's in this salvation that is the desperate need of all those who are the wicked that he mentioned at the end of chapter 48. When he talks about the islands, he's talking about the coastlands of the Mediterranean Sea. And the peoples from afar would be the Gentile heathen nations from all over the world. So this message is not only for the people of Israel, it's for the whole world. Message is also written in the imperative. It's a command. So it tells us that the servant of the Lord has absolute authority and commands people all over the world to listen to him. The first thing we see is that if there's going to be salvation from sin, there needs to be a savior. Well, the servant of the Lord tells us here of one of the fundamental things that was agreed on in eternity past. First one is this. 
The agreement called for the Savior to be born of a woman so he could take on human nature. In the last part of verse 1, the servant says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. Well, the very fact that the servant is born of a woman tells us that he would be human. He would take on human nature. This, of course, was prophesied in a very remarkable way back in Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophet said, Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, the servant of God had to be a human being because he was coming to save human beings all over the world. He had to be a man so that he could obey and suffer as a man on behalf of other men. And the fact that he was named from the womb speaks of this designation. As the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, which Josh read for us earlier, the baby would be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That was part of the eternal covenant that that would happen. Another aspect of this eternal covenantal agreement is this. The agreement called for the servant to be prepared in secret to speak the word of the Lord. Look at verse 2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So there is a focus here from the Father on the servant being concealed or being hidden. And this hiddenness is connected with the fact that the Lord made his mouth like a sharp sword. So the Lord's hiddenness tells us something about how he was prepared, was going to be prepared to do his work. We don't know much about Jesus' life before he reached the age of 30. We have information from Matthew and Luke about his birth, obviously, his arrival. And then we have, of course, one episode from the time when Jesus was 12 years old that Luke tells us about, but that's it. Otherwise, the events of Jesus' life before his public ministry are hidden from us. Just like we were told here in Isaiah 49 that would take place. So what was happening during those hidden years? Well, Luke does tell us about that. You know these verses, Luke uh, 2, 21 to 52. And he, uh, Jesus, this was, this was from the episode of when he was 12 years old. And Jesus went down with them, with Mary and Joseph, came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Joseph and Mary taught him, away from the eye of the public. Jesus was being prepared for his ministry as the servant of God by living in subjection to his parents. And as he listened to their instruction and did what was asked of him, he increased in wisdom, increased in stature. He grew in favor, it says, with God and man. One of the things that Jesus was certainly taught by Joseph and Mary was the scriptures. I think they had an important role here. This preparation was important 
to Jesus' teaching. If you remember, his teaching was described as something that people were amazed at. They'd never heard anything like this before. What came out of his mouth was actually the word of God. The words of his mouth are described here as being like a sharp sword. Or they're described over in Hebrews as being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. All of this was ordained by the Father in eternity past. And we see that as Isaiah gives us this insight into this holy dialogue between the Father and Son, these things develop as what was agreed on before the world was ever created. Another aspect of this eternal covenantal agreement is this. The agreement called for the servant's ministry to be often rejected by men, but his work would fulfill the Father's purpose and glorify him. Verse 3 and 4. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. So the servant, again, is giving us a direct quote from the Father. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. So here the servant is specifically identified as Israel. But we know this really can't be a reference to the whole nation. One of the immediately because the servant has just been described as an individual who would be born of a woman. So he's speaking of an individual, not a whole country, not a, na- a people as a whole. And then second, when we get down to verses five and six, the servant's ministry is to bring back the tribes of Jacob back to the Lord. So here the term Israel is referring specifically to the Messiah who's going to personally carry out the responsibility given to Israel as a whole. He comes from Israel so he can do the work for which Israel is responsible to do. Well, then we see in verse 4 that the servant speaks to the father of toiling in vain as if he was spending his strength for nothing. What we see here is the reality that that many are not going to respond well to the servant, Jesus Christ. They wouldn't respond well to what he would say, would not respond well to the things he would do. And there's even a sense of feeling discouraged about that. This could refer to situations like we see in John chapter 6. Jesus preached a very direct hard sermon to the people there. This was just after the feeding of the 5,000, so there were thousands of people who were present. And the response he got after this teaching, this sermon, was this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So thousands of people who had gathered around Jesus now rejected him after his sermon. In the very next verse, Jesus asked the twelve if they were going to leave as well. Peter was speaking on behalf of the others when he said, Where else will we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. Well, we see this aspect of the servant's ministry emphasized again in verse 7. There the servant is described as the despised one, as the one who's abhorred by his own nation. So those words 
are especially reminders of how the Jews not only rejected Jesus' ministry, but handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. Now, subsequent servant songs are going to deal with that issue in more detail. So these are the kind of situations where it would seem that the servant was toiling in vain. But what we see is that the servant was not primarily focused on the number of people who were following him and believing in what he had to say. His focus primarily is on honoring the father. So after speaking of toiling in vain, in verse 4, the servant says, Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord. My reward or my work is with my God. So his focus is on glorifying the Lord, glorifying God the Father by completing the work that he was given to do. In the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus often spoke about the fact that he was honoring the Lord by doing his will, honoring the Father by doing his will. He would not be derailed by things that were discouraging and disappointing. It's a really good example for us. I mean, we all have things. We could probably make a list of things that have been disappointing or discouraging to us. Some in the past, maybe some in the present. If you don't have any right now, you'll have some next week probably. We all have things that disappoint and discourage. But it's not the disappointments that should define our life. The focus of all that we do is to glorify God, not to make sure we're never disappointed. Our focus is to glorify God. The reward we look for is the reward that comes from living to serve him no matter what the circumstances around us are. And Jesus models that for us, even from before the foundation of the world. Well, the outcome of the servant's work then was in the hands of the Lord. And even though there were comparatively few people who actually believed and followed him when he died, in the 2,000 years since that time, multiplied thousands on top of thousands on top of thousands in countries and nations and people groups all over the world have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. When the last description of a servant's work, we see that the agreement called for the servant's work to provide salvation not only for Israel, but also for the nations. Verses 5 to 7. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, another reference to that, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So we continue to get insight into this holy dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. Verse 5 tells us how the servant is honored by the Lord's, uh, is honored in the Lord's sight and is strengthened by the Lord for the task that he's given to do. If you remember, Isaiah 42 spoke of the same thing, about the, about the Father giving him the strength that was necessary to carry out the task. So what is the task? 
Well, one aspect of it is in verse 5 when it says to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, some could apply this, and it has some application to Israel being brought back to the promised land, to their land, after the Babylonian captivity. And that is one of the things that Isaiah speaks of in, uh, in some detail in, in some of these chapters. So that truly happened. But this seems to be speaking from a more spiritual sense of bringing Israel back to the Lord. The sin of the people of Israel is pointed out many times in the book of, of Isaiah. They turned away from the Lord. There were many consequences for that. The servant would give himself to bring reconciliation between Israel and the Lord. But that's not all that the servant was called to do. We see a quote from God, the Father, in this covenant dialogue in verse 6, where he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God the Father says that the servant is going to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That doesn't mean that every Israelite, every Israelite is going to be saved or made right with God. It does mean that there is an elect remnant, the preserved ones, that the servant will reconcile to God. But that's not all. He's going to be a light to the nations. That means that the salvation that he earns will reach to the ends of the earth. It says there's even going to be kings and princes who are going to acknowledge the servant of God for what he is and, and bow down and serve him. One thing that's be good to be aware of, this passage is quoted twice in the New Testament, both times in reference to Jesus Christ. So once again, another indication that this is talking about Jesus, not the nation of Israel as a whole. First, Simeon quotes this, and we mentioned this last week because it also shows up from Isaiah 42. Simeon quotes it in Luke 2.32 when he saw the child in the temple when Joseph and Mary brought him to the temple to dedicate him there. He quotes from this passage the idea that he was going to be a light to the nations. The second time is Paul and Barnabas quote this from in, in Acts uh, 13. When the Jews, and they said, when the, the idea was, the context is when the Jews rejected the gospel message in Pisidian Antioch, they tell them they are now taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and they make application from this particular verse to what they're doing. And, can, and once they take the gospel to the Gentiles, the Gentiles gladly receive what they have to say. So we see in these first seven verses that from all eternity, the Father in covenant with the Son called him to be the servant who would show forth his glory in accomplishing salvation for sinners. Okay, let's look now at verses 8 to 12. Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are bound, Go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the road they will feed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them, and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north, and from the west, and these from the land of Senem. 
So we continue to have really just remarkable insight that Isaiah gives us of this holy, eternal dialogue between the Father and the Son. A dialogue that, again, has radical implications for the world before it was ever created. So our second main point is this. From eternity, the Father called the Son, his servant, to represent the people of God in a favorable time as their covenant head and only hope of salvation. Their covenant head and only hope of salvation. In verse 8, Jehovah speaks of a favorable time, which he also calls a day of salvation. The favorable time is the time in which the Lord accomplishes salvation through his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we celebrate his arrival at Christmas, of course. And by God's grace, that is the time in which we live. We live in this favorable time when the day of salvation has come. Isaiah and those in his day and before him could look forward to that day coming and believe in the Savior to come. We look on the fact that he has already come, and we live in that day. So Lord Jesus Christ was born as a human being. He had a flesh and blood mother, as we, as we have already noted. He lived under the law of God, perfectly obeyed that law all of his life. He was crucified, not because he had done anything wrong. He was perfectly righteous. Instead, he died as a substitute for sinners. He was resurrected, of course, as proof that what he had perfectly that he had perfectly accomplished that salvation that God the Father had sent him to accomplish. And anyone then who receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. We live in the day of salvation. He's accomplished all of that in time. Then the last part of verse eight. The Father says to the Son, I will keep you and give you for a covenant to the peoples of the people. So as we saw in the first servant song, the sovereign Lord is describing this holy redemptive dialogue as a covenant. It's a covenant that was made and confirmed in eternity past. It's spoken of in the new as a new covenant in places like Jeremiah 31. But it begins as this eternal binding covenant covenant between God the Father and God the Son, a covenant that ensured salvation for all that the Father gave to the Son, described elsewhere in the Bible as the elect, those who would end up putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So Christ is given as the covenant of the people. In other words, the covenant is embodied in Christ. Christ has been given a people from all eternity that he will save. He is the covenant head on their behalf. Interesting quote by Matthew Henry on his way of trying to describe this. He says, all the duty of the covenant is summed up in our being his. And all the privilege and happiness of the covenant are summed up in his being ours. So what he's saying here is this. The duty of the covenant that Henry speaks of is what must be accomplished for a person to be saved. It is Jesus Christ who accomplished that. He took on human flesh, lived the righteous life, died a substitute for sinners, was resurrected in victory over sin. He accomplished the duty that is ours. The duty of the covenant is accomplished. And since Christ accomplished the duty of the covenant 
all who believe in him for salvation receive the privilege and happiness that comes with the covenant. But it's all because Christ was given as the covenant for the people. That's the explanation for why this can be true. So Jesus Christ fulfilled that covenant on behalf of all who would be saved. That's the great work of the servant. So how is the servant going to ensure that those that the Father has given him will, in fact, be saved? Well, first we see this. The servant agreed to provide deliverance for those who know they are bound under sin, knows they're bound under sin, and therefore living in darkness. Jesus didn't come to save good people. Jesus came to save sinners. And the sin of sinners is described in several different ways, descriptions, metaphors that are used in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, they are people who are bound, therefore they're prisoners of sin. They are people who are in darkness, therefore they really cannot see the, the, the light of the gospel truth because sin has blinded them. In verse 10, there are people who are hungry and thirsty and living under a scorching heat. In verse 11, they are described as people who have mountains, in other words, great obstacles in their way. So there is the acknowledgement that sin is real, and it has to be dealt with if people are going to be saved. No one is good enough to fix themselves. We are all prisoners of sin. We are all blind. We are all afflicted by sin. Sin is like a great mountain, an obstacle that we can't get over on our own. But praise God, the servant of God came to save sinful people. He obligated himself by covenant to do that. So for those in bondage, he says, go forth. I have set you free. For those in darkness, he says, come out of the darkness, show yourselves, come into the light that I will provide. For those who are thirsty and afflicted, he says, he will have compassion on them and lead them to springs of water. For those for whom sin is like a mountain that they cannot overcome, he says, I will make all my mountains a road so that the way will be accessible to you. That's what God the Father ordained the servant of God to do when he gave him his covenant as a covenant for the people. And he did it. We live in the day of salvation. It's been accomplished. And if you are a Christian today, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ overcame your sin. He overcame your unbelief. He overcame your resistance to him and has granted us faith to believe. This is why any of us is a Christian. An agreement that was made before the world ever created that had specific application in each one of our lives. And again, it was done because he agreed to be our covenant head and to give us that hope of salvation. The next thing we see about this salvation that the servant of God covenanted to, covenanted to complete is this. Because of the work of the servant, people from all over the world will be drawn to him, will be drawn to him for salvation. We saw in verse 1 that the servant called for the islands and the peoples from afar to listen to him. 
We saw in verse 6 that the servant of God was given as a light to the nations so that this salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. So will people from those nations actually respond? I mean, they're bound in sin just like we saw. Will they respond? Yes, they will. Look at what he says in verse 12. Behold, these will come from afar. And lo, these will come from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinem. From all aspects, all corners of the earth. Interesting, by the way, there's a good possibility. People disagree on this. I've read a number of things on it. But there's a good possibility that what is described here as the land of Sinem is maybe a reference to what would come to be known as China. So people are going to be drawn from the Lord, to the Lord from afar, north, west, and even to distant lands like China. That's the reason there's hope for the work of missionaries. There are great obstacles all over the world to people coming to Christ for salvation. Every country we look at here, when we, when we examine, when we consider a country to pray for every week, every country we look at, there's obstacles that have to be dealt with in that particular nation. All of them have them. They all have them. The world is full of false teaching, false religions, man-centered philosophies, materialism, complete ignorance of the truth. But God the Father promised the servant of God an eternity that he would be the covenant for the people. And as a result of his work, he will call people from the four corners of the earth to salvation. The Lord will build his church in all nations. He has promised to do that. It's a covenant promise. We end with verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. So here we see our final point. The successful triumph of the servant in fulfilling this covenant of redemption is reason for great rejoicing. All of us know from experience the effects of sin in our own lives. We could all give various aspects of testimony about the effects of sin in our personal lives. We can all do that. We have seen what it's done to people around us. We read about in the news about things that happen in other people that we don't know personally. But we see all kinds of things. And it's easy to doubt that promises like this can ever become a reality. But in those doubtful times, the Lord comforts his people. In those doubtful times, that's the context of having compassion on his people. The work of the servant is so amazing and so life-changing and so hopeful for the world. And because of that, God calls the heavens to shout for joy. He calls for the earth as a whole to rejoice. He calls for the mountains to break forth in joyful shouting. I mean, this is a loud, exuberant joy that's being called for all over the world. And it's a joy for what God has accomplished. Now, from our perspective, it's a joy because a servant has already arrived. It's a joy because he has fully completed 
that work of salvation. And it's a joy for the fact that there's more to come. It's affected us, but there's more to come. We know that the expansion of the church to the ends of the earth will be completed. We know that because the Lord has allowed us to listen in on this holy, redemptive, covenant dialogue between the Father and the Son. The salvation of undeserving sinners like us from every nation on earth was promised before the foundation of the world. And in that, we have much reason to rejoice. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is an amazing chapter or a group of verses here from this chapter that it's just amazing to me that we have been granted access to a conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity. This is something that you wanted us to know about. This is something you wanted us to be privy to. And to recognize a number of these things have already happened. We can look at and see how these, these stipulations related to the covenant that was agreed on, that's just the way it took place when Christ came into the world. Thank you for those encouragements. And thank you for the encouragement of what was going, of what the effect of that was going to be in people all over the world and all times. Many of us can give testimony that there's been effect in our lives because of what was decided, of what was agreed on before the foundation of the world, and because of the salvation that the servant of God has accomplished on our behalf. Thank you so much. I ask for myself, or I ask for us, that our joy in that would continue to grow. Our understanding of that would continue to be greater than it is. Thank you so much for that glorious salvation. And thank you again for the opportunity we have this month just to be reminded of these things, that the Son of God has arrived and he's accomplished salvation. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. All this was spoken of before, not just before you were born, but before there ever was a world to even be born into. A Savior has been promised. A Savior has come. And I would invite you to put your faith in that Savior. No matter who you are, you're a sinner just like I am. I would invite you to come to Christ. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. In many fact, I think of my sin, it is like a mountain. I cannot figure out how I could ever get beyond some of these things. It just feels overwhelming. But I want to come to you as my Savior. I want to come to you as the one who paid the price for my sin. And I want to receive you as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, about that, uh, that of, of faith in Christ, you, you can make a note on your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of